Amen. I, I know that was for the God of Jacob that we just worshiped, but let's uh, also give it up for our worship team here. Wasn't that incredible? Man, what a blessing. That was incredible. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open it to Hebrews, and today I want to talk to you about developing the perspective of a giant. You know, we, we read stories like, like David and Goliath, and we think that we have to be perpetual uh, grasshoppers that are going to be stomped on by giants. But in reality, as we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to grow to develop a giant perspective. Uh, as trials come our way, as tribulations come our way, as people slander us, as, as, as Satan throws fiery darts at us, as we have an accusing conscience, as we look into our past, we need to develop the perspective that uh, not that we are grasshoppers that are in danger of being stomped on by everything that's assailing us, but that we are giants standing firm in Christ Jesus, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So if you have your Bibles, please open it to Hebrews, and we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5. You know, when I was a little kid, I played a Little League Baseball, and there was this kid on, on our team, and this kid's name was Chalk. Chalk was a very interesting kid. I mean, uh, he would always be out there in the outfield, and he would just be doing cartwheels. You know, he was just in his own sweet little world, and uh, sometimes Chalk would get up to bat, and it was T-ball, actually, and he had hit the ball off of the, off of the stand. And then Chalk would run to third base first. Rather than first, he would run to third. And everybody thought, wow, that's really cute. Chalk runs to third base. And it was really cute. But can you imagine if Chalk were playing baseball in high school or if Chalk were playing baseball in college and he got a hit and he ran to third base? That wouldn't be cute any longer. Why? Because everybody would say something is wrong with chalk. Something is the matter with chalk. That was cute when he was a kid and he ran to third base first. But as an adult, when adults do kiddish things, when adults do childish things, it's not cute. It's, it's a red flag. It's, it's an alarm. It's disturbing and it's sad, isn't it? How many of you guys have been to Six Flags and you've seen the little kids and they, they're ready to go into the rides and they're standing up as tall as they can, but when they begin to walk through to get on the ride, the, the conductor will say, hold on a second, let's see how tall you are, and they measure them against the ruler and the kid is standing as tall as he can, but maybe he's two or three inches too short and the conductor says, not this time, and the kid walks away sad. Isn't it sad when we don't get to, to, to do the things that are in our heart because we're not big enough? Well, this is the subject matter of Hebrews chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, you're, you're, you're not growing up. You're still acting like spiritual infants. And it's really, it's not cute, it's sad. Because there are so many rides, if you will, that God wants you to enter into. There's so many rides, if you will, that God wants you to, to enjoy. There's so many promises that God wants you to experience. But you're not entering into them because you haven't grown up. You should be grown by now. You should be mature by now. But you've chosen, and it is a decision, you've chosen to remain a spiritual infant. And so perpetually for their entire lives, they have this infant mindset. Now, is there anything wrong with being a spiritual infant? No, we were all spiritual infants at one time. But the problem is when we remain perpetual spiritual infants, or maybe we move into maturity, but for whatever set of circumstances or decisions we've made, we've decided to slide back into spiritual infancy. And it is sad. 
because we miss out on so many opportunities that God has for us, and it literally breaks the heart of God because he wants for us to enjoy so much. And this is the subject matter of Hebrews chapter 5. And if you've been with us throughout this series, and I encourage you to keep, to keep trekking along with us in the series in Hebrews, there's, uh, there's many more chapters to come. Your faith is going to grow so much. This chapter is all about faith and, and reaching maturity in Jesus Christ. But we've seen in the previous four chapters that the author of Hebrews, he continually uh, refers back to the Israelites after the time frame that they were delivered in Egypt and before the time frame that they entered into the promised land. And there was a group of people, and we read about this season in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 13, that's in the Old Testament, and God told Moses, send 12 spies into this land, it's the promised land, it's the land that you're going to inherit, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, you're going to prosper, and you're going to enter into this land, and you're going to have some elbow room, but you're going to multiply, and you're going to prosper, and one day your children, your descendants will look around and they'll say, this place is way too small for us. It's going to be an incredible land. It's going to provide everything that you need. Now, take 12 spies and go into the land and survey this land for 40 days. 12 spies because each of these spies came from one of the members of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 spies go in there and they're there for 40 days. And they take the grapes and they take food and, 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 and they take the, the harvest and the fruit of the land after they spy it out for 40 days. And they come back and they report to Moses and about two and a half million or so Hebrews. And they say, God was not lying when he said, it is indeed a good land, a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then 10 of the spies said, but there is no way that we're going to go in there because it is a fortified city. There are strong walls. There are strong towers. There are strong militaries. And in fact, the people there look like giants. They will certainly step on us. Now, was there anything wrong with the 12 spies going in there to survey the land? No, God told them to do it. Was there anything wrong for the 12 spies to come back and say it's a land flowing with milk and honey and, 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 and there's some really strong people, there's some really strong armies, there's some really fortified cities? No, those are simply facts. Those are simply facts. And facts are facts, and it's not a sin to realize the facts that are before us. But here's where these 10 spies, not 12, but 10 of the 12 spies really messed up and caused 2.5 million people to really stumble up. They took these facts... And they bowed down before the facts. And they allowed the facts to cast a shadow over them. And as a result, they were seized with fear. But there were two other spies. And the two spies that also saw the facts, like the other ten, but had an entirely different response. Their names were Caleb and Joshua. And they were both about 40 years old at this time. And Caleb and Joshua said, you know what, everything the other ten spies said, because two and a half million people, they're seized with fear, they fall on the ground, they're covering their heads with dust, it's a sign of mourning, and they're saying, let us just go back to Egypt, where we were slaves, it'd be better to die in Egypt than to die by the sword here in the wilderness. We can't knock out these people, we can't fight these people, they're too big for us, they're too strong for us. God brought us this entire way to destroy us in this way, and everybody was wailing 
and they were crying, but Caleb and Joshua, they stood up and they silenced the people and they said, yes, 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 it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And yes, there are fortified walls and strong armies and, and large people, but they didn't bow down before the facts. Instead, they submitted their facts to God. So the facts didn't cast a shadow over them, and consequently they weren't seized with fear. But rather they submitted the facts to God, and God's faithfulness, and God's love, and God's power so overshadowed the facts that they didn't look at themselves in the mirror and feel like grasshoppers. But rather they looked at the facts and believed that the facts look like grasshoppers compared to the God who's been so faithful to them throughout the years. And there's facts in your life, aren't there? There's nothing wrong with facts. You go to the doctor, you come back with facts. You go to work, you come back with facts. You look around and you size up the situation and you develop facts. Facts are facts. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't bow down before the facts, but rather we submit the facts to a God who has been so faithful to us. And then the faithfulness of our God overshadows our facts. Consequently, we're not seized with fear, but rather we walk with faith. We, yeah, let's praise God. Put your hands together. We look into our past and we see that we've sinned. And those are facts. But then we also look at the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of all uh, sins and unrighteousness. And our faith overshadows the facts. We look around and we realize there's difficulty and there's pressing issues and perhaps things are not unfolding the way you anticipated. Facts are facts, but we submit the facts to the God whose love and power and wisdom overshadows them and we're filled with faith. We look into the future and we don't know what tomorrow might hold, but we know that God's promises are in our tomorrow. And though we don't know the details, we know the one who holds tomorrow and so that we have faith rather than seized with fear. What's interesting to me is that the 10 spies, along with the two and a half million Hebrews, had the same shared experiences as Caleb, Joshua and Moses. Same experiences. They all saw God break the will of Egypt through the ten plagues. They all saw the Red Sea's part, and they all walked across on dry ground. They all watched God destroy their enemies behind them as the sea closed on top of the Egyptians. They were all led by a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. They were all fed with heavenly manna from the hand of God in the wilderness. They all drank from the water that gushed out of the rock that Moses struck. They all had the same shared experiences. And yet these ten spies plus two and a half million Hebrews chose to remain spiritual infants. And live their life as perpetual victims. Constantly feeling like grasshoppers standing against the trials and tribulations that were assailing them. But these two other spies, Caleb and Joshua and Moses, they didn't have this perpetual victim mindset. But they grew in their faith in God's faithfulness. 
This, this wasn't even blind faith that God was asking them to go into. And he calls us into blind faith from time to time. But the more we walk with God, it's not even blind faith because we have faith in God's faithfulness. He's so good to us. He's never let us go. He's always picked us up. He's always carried us through. He's always provided for us. He's always restored us. And they chose to have faith in God's faithfulness. They said, yeah, it's a big army and there's fortified walls, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Yes, arrows are going to fly at us, but no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And yes, people are going to come against us, but, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, there's going to be a battle, and, and it's not going to be easy, but if God has been faithful this entire way, how can he not continue to be faithful and carry us into the promised land? So why, why is it that ten spies were spiritual infants when exposed to the exact same set of, of circumstances testifying of God's faithfulness? And two spies in, plus Moses, why were they spiritually mature? Why did some not grow? Why did some grow? Why did some spend their entire lives living uh, like, like grasshoppers and living with a victim mindset and living without faith? And these other two, they grew. And by the way, this wasn't just a bad decision. This wasn't just a bad uh, judgment call. This wasn't just a bad uh, leadership decision that these ten spies made. This was their way of life. Their entire life, they were faithless. Their entire life, they and two and a half million Hebrews in the wilderness uh, refused to trust God. They refused to grow. They were insistent that they were going to be perpetual victims, and they all died in the wilderness. Forty years later, Caleb, 80, now he's 80, 85 years of age, they're now ready to enter into the promised land with the younger generation that wasn't committed to spiritual infancy for their entire lives. And at 80 to 85 years old, Caleb said, I'm as strong now as I ever have been. And he was ready to fight, and he went in and he fought for his land. And they inherited the promised land. So Hebrews chapter 5 discusses why some remain in spiritual infancy and how we can grow, how we can move into maturity. Because there comes a time in our relationship with Jesus Christ where it's just not cute any longer if we hit the ball and run to third base. There comes a time that we grow. There comes a time in our relationship with Jesus Christ where it's just not cute if we walk up to the right and we're not big enough to enter in because we should have grown. There comes a time that we walk with God. There comes a time that we enter into God's promises. There comes a time that we're no longer spiritual grasshoppers, but we're spiritual giants. So, our text verse in chapter 5 begins with verse 11, and Paul writes, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer trying to understand. Another translation will say, because you're, a, you're, you're, you're dull, you're dull of hearing. Verse 12, in fact, though this time some of you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I'm excited that you're here. 
Because I believe that this is going to be a, a significant step in your spiritual journey where your faith begins developing traction and you begin growing in spiritual maturity so that you can enter into the promises that God has planned for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would open up our heart and allow your word to take root so that we can grow and enter into spiritual maturity so we can inherit all of the promises that you have planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is going to be a very simple sermon. We're going to talk about what is a spiritual infant? What does a spiritual infant look like? And then from there, we will talk about how can we grow up? How can we grow up? And it's all based in Hebrews chapter 5. So let's begin. What is a spiritual infant? One, we see that a spiritual infant is someone who is dull toward the word. They are dull toward the word. And we read about this in verse 11. We've much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer trying to understand or because you've become dull of hearing. Can I give you guys a, just a practical tip about life I've learned and all of my experiences? When you go to the grocery store, it's best not to be really hungry. <laughs> little tip of life I've picked up. And that's because what tends to happen is, don't you tend to fill the basket up with Oreo cookies and, and bags of M&Ms and uh, vanilla wafers and fruity pebbles and that sort of thing. But if you're, hung, if you, if you're full, if you're not really hungry, well then, then you know, you might, you might go to the vegetable section and, or the, fruit, the produce section and, and you might fill your basket up with, with, with healthy things. So, so then we see that we can be dull towards desiring healthy things if we are desiring unhealthy things or if we satisfy ourselves with unhealthy things then we won't desire healthy things for example uh, let's say that you're going to uh, treat your family to del frisco's and you're going to have the most amazing steak and you're looking so forward to it and you've been thinking so much about these steaks that your mouth is watering and your, your whole family, y'all are just getting increasingly hungry, thinking about having the best steaks that you've ever had in your life. But you're so hungry that as, you, as you're driving to Del Frisco's, maybe you stop off at Jack in the Box and get some onion rings. Just to kind of kill your appetite, right? And then so you continue on, and, and again, you're so hungry that you think, you know what, there's Whataburger, let's just pull over. And so you get a large order of fries at Whataburger. And... Then still on the way yet, you, you pull over and you pick up some, some of those fried um, jalapeno poppers. And then by the time you get to Del Frisco's, you didn't really care if you had the steak or not. Why? Because you're filled up with a whole lot of junk. And in the same way, we become dull to the Word of God because we fill up with all kinds of junk so that our, our hearing is dulled. How do we... How, how, how do we junk food, so to speak, so that our hearing to the Word of God is dulled. Well, in many ways, and it's all about intake. What do you meditate on? What do you watch? What do you listen to? How do you spend your time? And then after all of this time, when it comes time for the Word, we just allow it to continue to collect dust because we're already dull toward the Word. Let's look in verse 12 of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 6, the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. It says that we do not want you to become lazy, 
but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. In other words, ride the rides they're supposed to ride at Six Flags because they've grown tall enough. We don't want you to remain spiritual infants. We want you to grow. We want you to inherit the things that God has promised for you. But you can't grow if you remain dull or if you remain lazy to the things of Scripture. This word lazy or sluggish in, in, in Hebrews 6.12 is the same as dull used in Hebrews 5.11. It's just being indifferent. It's being lazy. It's being sluggish. And, and then we, we fill up with all sorts of other things. But instead we, we read in, in verse 12 that the opposite of lazy would be earnest. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience or earnestness have inherited what has been promised. Notice that we can become lazy. And I think that it's really sad when when I see people really start out passionate about Jesus Christ, passionate about worshiping, passionate about the word, and passionate about loving the body of Christ and building up the body of Christ and passionate about lost people and praying for them and, and inviting many people to come to Christ. And then, and then they just begin growing dull toward the word. And when they begin growing dull toward the word, they begin growing dull toward the things of God. So first, we see that a spiritual infant is dull toward the word of God. Don't raise your hand, but is that you? Are you dull toward the word? Our church had this long extended fast for one, one season. It was a really awesome thing. And we all, man, we weren't just going without, we were going without to go with God. We were giving up to, to go deeper with God. And, and in fact, many people fasted from food and many people fasted from things like social media. And even after the fast, they just continued to, to go right on fasting. Um, they just developed a hunger for God. And at the end of going without food for, you know, X number of days, things that weren't maybe very appetizing before became like, I mean, it, those things became like a steak, like a can of tomato soup became like the best meal that you've ever had in your life because you were so hungry. And when, when we deny the world, when we go without sinning, when we go without, without meditating on sinful things in our, in our hearts and in our mind, and when we go without... Uh, junk, spiritual junk food, which is things like TV, when we go without these things, we begin developing a hunger for the Word of God. So a Christian is dull toward, a, a lazy Christian, a spiritual infant is somebody who is dull toward the Word. Secondly, a spiritual infant is someone who cannot digest the Word. In verse 12, we read. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Watch this. You need milk, not solid food. You need milk, not solid food. You need milk, not solid food. Have you guys ever seen a baby like maybe about eight months old and they had a napkin around their neck and they had a fork in one hand and a knife in the other and they were cutting this T-bone steak and they were eating on it, and they were saying, this is an amazing steak. No, a baby can't eat steak. Why? Because they, they can't chew it. Their, their teeth are not developed. Their, their, their muscles are not developed. They can't chew it. Their, their stomach can't handle it. Their, their digestive system cannot process it. 
And in the same way, we know that people are in a state of perpetual spiritual infancy. One, because they're dull toward the word. They don't desire the word. Because they're filled up with selfish ambition or just straight up sin in their heart and mind. Just straight up sin. And then their appetite for the word is dull, if not dead. Therefore, you have no faith. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And your capacity for the word of God is so limited. You can barely handle just a little bit of the word of God. You, you maybe equate some pithy little saying that you may see on somebody's Facebook post, like God helps those who help themselves, which isn't even in the Bible. And that's your spiritual food for the, for the year. And you have little capacity for the word of God because you can't digest it. And that's a mark of spiritual immaturity. A spiritual infant, thirdly, we read, is somebody who cannot discern how to apply the Word of God to their circumstances. We read this in 14, chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature. Solid food. It's not for the infants. It's for the mature. Who can, by constant use, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In other words, in distinguishing good from evil, that's through the Word of God distinguishing, discerning, having the wisdom to apply it to your life. It's distinguishing good from evil when it comes to the word of God is simply having the discernment, having the wisdom to apply it to your life. It's what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing what to do. Wisdom is doing it, right? And, and so the spiritually mature are able to discern how to apply the word at this season, in this juncture, on this day, in this conversation, in this decision, in their lives. It's application. It's wisdom. It's the application of knowledge. There are Christians, mind you, who have been Christians for many years, perhaps even decades. But how old you are as a Christian has no bearing on how mature you are as a Christian. Did you hear that? How old you are as a Christian has no bearing on how mature you are as a Christian. Now, a Christian may have been a Christian for many decades, and they are an older Christian. And as a result, they have a lot of accumulated knowledge. But knowledge and being a Christian for a long time has nothing to do with being a mature Christian. Because you can be an older Christian with a lot of knowledge, but still not appropriate that knowledge where... Your faith has traction, and you love God and love the church and love a broken world well. It's all about discerning how to apply the word. And then we also see that a spiritual infinite doesn't have the capacity. They lack the ability to deliver the word, to deliver the word. We read in verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need somebody to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. So I was really encouraged uh, yesterday morning at 9 a.m. We, we have a men's group. And, oh, I don't know. There's about 12 men around a conference table, and we go through, we're going through the book of Romans. We've been on it all summer long, and, and it was just really cool. George Alvarez was there, and George said, you know, I came to this church, and I'm being discipled. And I think that's just one of the greatest compliments that somebody could give our church that, that they come here and they're discipled. You know, this is a place that we disciple with, with love and, 
and through relationships and bearing with one another's burdens and, and extending grace and helping one another uh, apply truth to our life and so that our faith takes traction. And so we were just talking about discipleship. And I told these 12 guys around this table, I said, you know, a time is coming, and I believe this year, within this next year, a time is coming where in order for you men to grow, in order for you men to, to take the next step in your spiritual journey, in order for you to progress in faith so that you keep, you keep growing, so that you keep riding bigger rides at Six Flags, you keep entering into greater promises that God has planned for you, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to take the shift from being discipled to being a discipler of others. And I, and I believe that's just going to happen within the course of the next year. Like right now, you 12 are around this table, but within the next year, I see, I see 12 people around each one of you. And you're just pouring into them. And there's all sorts of gifts and skill sets. Some people are gifted and skilled to break down the Greek and Hebrew, and so people can apply that to their lives. Hey, that's awesome. Some people are gifted and skilled more in a, in a relational capacity just to walk along somebody and speak truth to them. That's awesome. Some people are more gifted and skilled and more governing, kind of a, a, a kingly anointing to just through leadership be able to gather people around them. And so that, 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 that group of people minister to one another and they sort of foster that environment of growth. Any skill set, any God-given skill set can be utilized by the Holy Spirit to, to deliver the word into somebody's life so that they, they can grow. And I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but again, it's really not about how long, it's just simply about growing as a Christian. But I do know this, Most people in this room, I would say 95% of the people in this room, in order for you to grow in the next level in your life, need to take the step, the transition from being discipled. Now, we're always being discipled. I'm always, myself personally, I'm always being discipled. But not just being discipled, but we have to take the next step in being a discipler. And finding somebody and loving them and having a relationship with them and then helping them grow in their next relationship and in, in, in the next level of their relationship with Christ. So what's a spiritual infant? Is, is this you? Are you dull of hearing toward the word? Are you able to digest the word? Do you have a capacity to it? Can you discern how to apply the word to your daily life? Can you deliver the word of God to others in a manner that they can apply it to their life and begin growing? So... That's what a spiritual infant looks like. Now let's move on and talk now about how we can all grow up. How we can all grow up. If infancy is caused by a lazy and a sluggish heart, then moving into spiritual maturity is achieved by a diligent heart. A diligent heart. You can choose to be diligent. You can choose to be passionate. Sluggishness Apathy, it produces sluggishness and apathy. Passion produces passion. Did you know that? Sluggishness produces sluggishness. Passion produces passion. So how do we develop a passion for the Word of God? One, drink in the Word of God. Verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So you start where you are and begin drinking in the Word of God. First Peter 2, 
2 talks about drinking in the word of God and, and taking in the milk of God's word. So we all need to begin drinking the word of God. I'm not going to ask you to show your hand, you know, to raise your hand. But just let me ask you this question. Do you have a faith that moves mountains right now? Well, let's back calibrate that. I can answer that question for you by leading you to another question. Do you drink in the word of God every day? Do you? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We read in Psalm chapter 119, which incidentally is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And anytime God is being very emphatic, you know that he's trying to be very clear. The longest chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm 19, it's all about the word. Every sentence is about the word of God. It calls the, the, the Bible things like your decrees, your statutes, your ordinances, your laws, your teaching, your word, your promises. Let me just flip there and show you. Every single verse in this longest chapter in which God is being absolutely emphatic is all about drinking in the Word of God on a daily basis, on a daily basis. Maybe you get a little word in. Maybe you're just consistent on Sunday morning. Maybe you just get a little word in right here, and that's awesome. The Bible commands us not to forsake ourselves, the assembling of believers. But if this is all you get, or perhaps, you know, just once a quarter you come to church, or once a month, or something of that nature, or just once a week, if this is all you get, or even a few times a week, you'll be about as strong as you would physically if you only ate about once a week, or about once a quarter, or about once a year. How strong would you be physically? Would you be ready to run a race if you hadn't eaten in a month? That's how strong you are spiritually if you haven't taken in the Word of God in a month. How much energy would you have every week, week after week after week, for work if all you ate was one meal a week on Sunday afternoon? That's how strong you are spiritually to face every trial that you face on a daily basis. How often are we to to drink of the Word of God daily, every single day? Again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Again, do you have faith in your life to move mountains? I'll answer that question by asking you this question. Do you drink in the Word of God every single day? If you have little joy in your heart, you can go to counseling all day long. But if you have a little time in God's Word, you will remain joyless. Because the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, it comes from the Word of God. Counseling has its place. Certainly it does. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and he imparts that spiritual gift to one another. Counseling certainly has its place. But we can't take shortcuts and expect to have peace, joy, and love flowing out of a fully restored heart if we're not drinking in the Word of God every single day. Psalm 119, I'm just going to randomly point to some of these verses, and I just pray it stirs your awareness of your need for the Word of God, and it stirs your passion for the Word of God. Okay, this is just random. Nothing's been pre-marked. Here we go. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope, verse 49. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you, verse 91. Take Away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. Verse 39. You are my portion, Lord. I have 
promise to obey your words. Verse 57. My soul faints longing for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes, verse 81, my eyes fell looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I may obey your word. It goes on and on. How shall a young man take heed and keep his way pure by taking heed according to your laws? I open my mouth, it says, and pant, longing for your commands. We have to drink in the word of God every day. There's no, there, there's no shortcut here. There's no app that you can just download and it just kind of does it for you. There's no matrix kind of thing where you can just have this thing just kind of interjected into your DNA and then you have faith. There's no shortcuts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Are you in the word every day? C.S. Lewis said that we don't, we, we don't need to be uh, taught nearly as much as we need to be reminded. And so let this be a reminder to you that you've got to be in the Word of God every single day. Where do you start? Well, I, I encourage you to start with the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. It's the Gospel. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's all about the life of Jesus. It's exciting stuff. And anytime you see the red letters, of course, that's Jesus speaking. And anytime He commands something, do it. Anytime he promises something, believe it. Anytime you see an example, follow it. Anytime you see an error from some people around Jesus, avoid it. If there's a promise to believe, believe it. If there's a prayer to pray, pray it. If there's an example to follow, follow it. If there's an error to avoid, avoid it. Read the book of Matthew. Open up the Bible to about the very middle of the book, that's Psalms. I'm in the Psalms every day. And you just read the Psalms. They're prayers, they're ancient prayers, but they're supernatural, they're spiritual, there's divine promises in here for you today, and pray it as a prayer back to God. Personalize it. Use the words as your words, and when God gives you a promise, stand on that promise. And you start, you start getting a few days behind you being consistent, and you'll start having joy and peace. You start getting a few more days behind you being consistent in God's word every day, you'll start having boldness and authority. You start getting a few more days behind you being consistent in the word of God, then you're not walking according to your five senses, things that you touch, taste, see, smell, hear. But rather you're functioning on a sixth sense that might be brand new to you, and that's a sense called faith. And you're walking by faith. And then all of a sudden, you start getting a few weeks like this behind you consistently, and when people see you, they don't even see you. They see Jesus shining through you. That's the truth. That is the way it works. There are no shortcuts. There is no app that you can just, you know, bypass this process. Why? Why? Why, why, why isn't there an app that you can just bypass this whole process? Here, here's the reason. It's because this whole thing is not some religion. This is a relationship with the God who loves you, who created the universe as a metaphor, an elaborate metaphor of his inexhaustible love toward you. And he traveled the cosmos to pay the price for your sins on a cross because he didn't want to spend forever without you. This is not some list of rules and regulations that we simply check off. This is about a knowing, knowable God who knows your name and he knows how many hairs are on your head. 
and he's got a plan for your life, and it's the best plan for your life, and he has promises that he wants to see unfold in your life, but the only way these promises will unfold is if you know him well enough to hear his voice promise these things through the word, and you know him enough that you know that he's faithful and he's trustworthy, and you follow him and you believe these promises. This thing is a relationship with a dynamic, speaking, listening, whispering, sometimes shouting, communicative God who loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he just wants one thing from you, and that's your heart. That's your relationship. That's why there is no shortcut here. It's about a relationship. So every day we let God whisper through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, his love to us, his promises to us, his wisdom to us, his warnings to us, his heedings to us, his exhortation, his encouragement. Drink in the word of God. And then secondly, digest the word of God. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Digest it. Digest this. We challenge some of our youth to memorize Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite pages in the Bible. If I were on a deserted island for the next 25 years and could only have one page of the Bible, it would be Romans chapter 8. If I could only have one book of the Bible, I think it would be the book of Hebrews. Because we can... We'll never reach the depth of Hebrews, will we? But if I could have one page, it would be Romans chapter 8. And it, was, it, it filled my heart with such joy to see these kids. Some got through the first few verses. And gosh, if you, just get, if you could just hold on to the first few verses of Romans chapter 8, man, that is a foundation for the rest of your life. Some got through most of the entire chapter, which was incredible. But for all of us, for all of us, we have to be careful for the tendency. We have to process the word, meditate on the word. That's memorizing. We have to meditate on it. We memorize the word, but then meditating goes a little bit deeper. Meditating is digesting it. And you see the difference? Drinking it in, that's hearing it. Memorizing it, that's sort of engraving it on our heart and mind. But then digesting it. Digesting it is praying about and having the wisdom to understand what it means and how to apply it to our daily lives. Because we can just have a lot of knowledge, but if we don't know what it means and we don't know how to apply it to our lives, knowledge simply puffs up. But when we, when we understand how it applies to our lives, then we grow in our relationship with Christ and we grow in love. So we have to digest the word. And that, that simply is, is, is thinking, what does it mean? How do I apply it to my life? And by the way, Throughout the book of Hebrews, and we're going to review some of these admonitions. The book of Hebrews is a book of faith, but it's also an admonition filled with warnings that we better be careful to put into practice what we know. And if we don't know it, we better be careful to seek it out. Because we can wake up one day and our entire lives is past us and we never grew spiritually and never rode the rides that God planned for us to ride. We read in Hebrews 2.1, pay close attention to the message you've heard. Pay close attention. And 3.1, consider Jesus. Consider, this is contemplate. This is think about Jesus. Meditate on his ways. 
How can you emulate? Chapter 3, verse 8. Don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. In the wilderness. A hardened heart, a dull heart, is a decision. It's a decision to remain spiritually sluggish. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. Did you see that? And these are people who saw incredible miracles from God, and yet they had this evil heart of unbelief. They never stopped complaining. Poor Moses. I think anybody in the Bible, I would least rather be in Moses' sandals of anybody in the Bible. He had to lead about two and a half million people through a wilderness for 40 years, and they incessantly criticized and complained and backbited and rebelled and they had divisions. I mean, the poor guy, but he kept on loving them and he kept on defending for them. He kept on interceding. He had the heart of Christ. But they had an evil, unbelieving heart, but it was their decision. It was their choice. Chapter 4, verse 1, fear. It's a decision to fear lest you fall, fail to enter into God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 11, be diligent to enter God's rest lest you fall by disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 14, hold fast to your confession. These are commands for us to take action, for us to be passionate. Chapter 10, verse 25, let's not neglect meeting together, but continue encouraging one another. Do these warnings mean that you can lose your salvation? Not at all, but we can certainly lose our blessings. Don't misunderstand. Because we can't lose our salvation does not mean that there is not so much to lose. Did you hear that? Just because we can't lose our salvation for eternity does not mean there is still not so much to lose by not entering into God's rest, by not clinging to His promises, by choosing not to grow, by not having a passionate heart. So then, we drink the Word, we digest the Word, and then finally, we do the Word. We do the Word. The Christian journey begins with a single step. And this is trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then from there, we continue to go from faith unto faith as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ by acting upon, by being obedient to what we know that we are to do right now. I remember when I was a little kid and, and I got baptized. I, I got baptized by water twice. When I was a little kid and, and I was baptized, I remember thinking... Right before I went into the baptistry waters, I remember thinking, how do I get myself in these situations? <laughs> and I was terrified. Um, I remember as I grew, and I, I believe I was a Christian then, but I, I didn't understand a lot of the meaning and the beauty and the symbolism of following Jesus in baptism. So when the Lord called me to the ministry as my life's passion, then um, I wanted to follow Jesus in baptism again. And I remember thinking the same thing. How do I get myself in these situations? Just stepping out and uh, being in front of people and being vulnerable. Then I, I remember when the Lord started dealing with my heart that a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who takes their faith in Jesus seriously, someone who takes Jesus' love for them seriously, someone who takes what Jesus did for them on the cross seriously, can't, as a, as a high school kid, I couldn't do the things I was doing on Friday night anymore. And God dealt with me with that. And I remember when I had to part company with some of my friends, and I counted the cost. And I remember 
when the Lord called me to, to in, into the Young Life ministry, and it was the east side of Fort Worth, and I was starting a Young Life ministry out there, and I was just a kid myself ministering to kids. I was only 19 years of age starting a, a, a ministry on the east side of, 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 of Fort Worth, and you know, working a few jobs and going to school and not knowing what it is to minister. But I had Jesus' love in my heart for that school, and they were practically my peers. And I remember walking in there at the cafeteria one day, and I thought, how do I start a ministry here? And then just extending my hand to some kids and saying, hi, my name's Shane. And that was the birth of that ministry. But here's what I realized throughout the years in our relationship with Christ. Yesterday's incredible leaps of faith eventually become today's comfort zones, don't they? Did you guys get that? Yesterday's steps of faith, radical steps of faith, eventually become today's comfort zones. Which means that we have to constantly seek God, and we have to constantly stand on the Word, and we have to constantly step out. And I remember it was like losing a a loved one when I left that Young Life ministry that was initially terrifying and eventually became a step of faith, and then moving into the next ministry, and then that was such a step of faith. And then I, I remember when the Lord put upon my heart this church, and I remember going into my pastor's office and telling him that I was going to have to resign, and, and he said to me, you know, I, I always pictured you taking the reins to this place in a few years, and I said, God spoke to me, and I don't know if this thing will succeed or fail, but I know if I don't do this, I will be disobedient, and I said, do you, do you understand that, and he said, how do you think I wound up here, I absolutely understand that, and they gave me their blessing, and they sent me out, and we started Hope Works, and all of that to say this, if you're not applying the word of God, as God whispers, as God speaks, if you don't do it, then you'll never grow, and you'll remain in spiritual infancy. And so let me ask you, what has God spoken to you? There's things that are absolutely black and white, straight up. You know it's God's word, and you know it's God's will, and you know you need to do it, or you know you don't need to do it because it is so not God's will. It is so inconsistent with his word. You will never grow. You will never have a hunger for God if you continue in disobedience. You have to do the word of God. You have to do it. And you think, how can I do it? I don't, I don't know if I have enough courage to do it. I don't know that I have enough boldness to do it. You don't. I've never had enough courage or boldness to be obedient to the word of God. Not in myself. But Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. And it is his spirit who works within me to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So if you know what you need to do or what you don't need to do, then all you have to do from there is say, Holy Spirit, I am a willing vessel and I need your strength and I need you to help me. And then you just step out and you'll move from faith to faith to faith. And you'll be growing more and more and more. So we've got to be in the Word every day. I have a friend, uh, a, a recent friend who, who lost a loved one, and, and it's really going to change things in her life. And um, The days to come are going to be very different from how she's grown accustomed to being comfortable and secure. And, and I encouraged her. I, I said, you know, I went over that afternoon after her loved one passed away, and I said, You've got to reserve the morning times for God. She said, how am I going to get through it? I said, 
day by day. Just take it one day at a time. That's all God asks us. Pick up your cross daily, daily. Don't worry about tomorrow, just daily and follow. And every day, the Holy Spirit will give you strength for today. Every day, God will give you grace for today. I said, even to this day, I can't get through a day without joy and peace and passion and love overflowing my heart if I don't begin it with the Lord. In the morning, with a little time in the Word, with prayer. You may be a morning person, get your time in with the Lord in the morning. You might be a night owl, get your time in with the Lord at night. The thing is, we spend time with the Lord because we focus on Him and we have a relationship with Him. But then we don't compartmentalize Him and then just kind of go on with the rest of our day and leave Him back in our prayer closet. But we walk with God throughout the day and we talk with Him and we listen to Him and we commune with Him. It's what Brother Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God. And some people neglect their daily devotional time, their daily quiet time, their daily prayer closet time, whatever you want to call it. Some people neglect their daily time with God because they think, well, all I need is to practice the presence of God throughout the day. And so I don't want to compartmentalize Him in my prayer time. But my experience, but more importantly, Jesus' example is a daily devotional with the Father. Early in the morning when it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went to a solitary place and he prayed. Why did he do that? He ministered late into the night. And then after that next verse, the Bible says the disciples found him and they said, there you are, we've been looking all over for you. What's the point? If we don't schedule our calendars, our calendars will schedule us. And we're all too busy. And if we don't etch into our calendars as a non-negotiable everyday intimacy with Christ, daily time with Christ, a quality time, let's call it quality time, to foster our relationship with the Father through the Word and through prayer and through listening. If we don't foster that relationship, our faith will grow dim and we won't have the spiritual endurance, the spiritual awareness, or the spiritual sensitivity to practice the presence of God throughout the day. But if we have consistent time where we nurture our relationship with Christ daily, then there's going to come a time where we become addicted to Jesus. We become Christ addicts. We just long for more of the living water and the bread of life and to trust in Christ. And his presence is all we need to face anything that could ever come against us. So would you stand with me, please? This, this single step that begins our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, it was initiated by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for us. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. And then, and then our love toward him is a response. I called a good friend of mine last night. He lives in Michigan. He and his wife, his name's Mac McDonald. And he and his wife, uh, they, they, they hibernate. They, they come down here for the cold winters, and then they go back for the hot summers. And he's, he's retired now. Just, he's only been retired about a year, but he's been a scientist his entire life. And on top of that, he was an atheist most of his adult life. Well, he gave a testimony about a year ago. And um, this scientist, this atheist, listen to this testimony. This atheist, um, he was in one of those little convertible NG cars, those little MGBs. And they were driving, 
and he had a head-on collision with a big truck. And so the next thing that he knows is that he is about, he said about 15 feet above the ground. This is an atheist telling this story, a scientist, an atheist. He's about 15 feet above ground, and he's just hovering, and he's watching the accident scene unfold. He sees his body. He sees people laying around there. And then he knows that he's, his head is laying against the chest of somebody. And he said, although I was an atheist, I knew that it was Jesus. I knew in my heart and mind it was Jesus. So he wakes up in the hospital. And the doctor said, this is, by the way, like a miracle within a miracle within a miracle within a miracle. And the doctor said, you have a hole in your nasal cavity. He said, usually the only times that we see one of those things is on the morgue table. But because of that, they did all kinds of MRIs. But he lived that, right? So that was the second miracle. But because of that, they did all sorts of MRIs, and they discovered a tumor like back behind his eye and nose and navel cavity and all that. And if they didn't catch it, he would have been dead in two months. And because of all that, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It was a miracle within a miracle within a miracle within a miracle. It was pretty phenomenal. And uh, he, that, the Lord gave him that. I, I didn't need those sorts of things to believe in Jesus. I just needed to know I'm a sinner. I, I did, I mean, that wasn't rocket science for me. I, I, I was a sinner. And then I believe Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. I, I, I believe that this thing called life is too intricate. It's too detailed. It's too beautiful. I mean, you look at the, the, the texture of a baby's skin is so soft. How could that be an accident? The detail in the eye, the detail in the fingernails and their, and their knuckles. How, how could that not be on purpose? Not even to speak of something as utterly complex as the intricacy of each of our individual DNAs. No doubt, there is a God. He is a creator, and he's not unknowable. He came near, and he spread out his arms on the cross, and he said, I love you so much, I would rather pay for your sins on this cross than to live forever in heaven without you. And so we respond to that through faith. The just shall live by faith. This is how you're born again. Spiritual infancy is beautiful when you're born again. But now it's time we grow, right? Now it's time we start applying the word. It's time we get into the word every day. We develop a hunger for the word. We stand on the promises. We pray the promises back to God. Uh, We begin sharing the promises with others. We begin uh, giving a testimony of what Jesus has done in our life, how he came through, how he delivered us. We begin counting the cost for our faith. We begin, if need be, losing our job. If need be, losing relationships. If need be, losing finances. Whatever it is, we count the cost. If need be, losing our lives. And when we count the cost for the name of Jesus Christ, like the disciples, we praise him because we were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. But this relationship where we begin growing, where we enter into greater and greater rides, because we grow taller and taller, our faith grows so we enter into more and more promises, it begins by trusting that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Even the demons believe and and tremble. It's not a history lesson. It's it's, It's trust. You don't just believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. You believe he died for your sins personally, and you are forgiven. 
and you are heaven bound. You don't just trust that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You trust that he is your leader and your Lord. And you call upon Jesus Christ to save you. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The just shall live by faith. How much faith does it take to be saved? Enough to humble yourself and ask. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. The Holy Spirit moves into your heart and you're born again. And now it's time that we grow. So before we go any further, I'm just going to invite you to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And during this prayer, if you're prepared for baptism, you can slip on out and, and change. And we'll meet you at the baptistry out there. But if you would bow your heads, just repeat after me. God, I know that I have sinned. I can sense the emptiness in my heart. That void that cannot be satisfied by this world. I've tried, but my heart remains empty, dead. But I praise you. My heart has never been unloved. Thank you for loving me, Jesus. Thank you for paying the price for my sins. By dying on the sins, by, by dying on the cross, I trust in that as payment for my sins so that I can be forgiven. Now wash me clean so that my sins are forgiven and clothe me with your righteousness. Come into my heart through your Holy Spirit. I believe that I'm heaven bound because I am now your child by faith. I've trusted in you to be my Lord and Savior. Amen. And so, yeah, let's praise him. How do we respond with so great a salvation? There's only one appropriate response, and that's with all of our hearts. So let's just spend some time in worshiping Jesus.